Walking down Meeting House Lane in Brighton last week, I came across this shop front. I hadn't previously noticed Flashback selling retro posters and records. The sudden appearance on my doorstep of such an appropriately named retailer, however, confirmed the experience of reading Kate Flint's stunning Flash. It confirmed that traces of Flash are everywhere now that she has alerted us to them. The concept of flashback is one of many threads knitting time and memory within Kate's historically and culturally rich and geographically broad study of flash photography. Flashback also signals the interdisciplinary and the intermedial aspects of the book. Its attention to textual as well as visual manifestations of flash are really important, I think. As Kate demonstrates, quote, flash photography shatters the light environment that precedes and follows it and provides a vocabulary for us to talk about certain forms of recollection. In the form of flashbulb memories, for example, the material objects of flash technology provide a language conveying the shock of unexpected recollections. But while the concept of flashback is familiar from the realm of cinema, and there are, it turns out, many shops in the world called flashback, what struck me about the Brighton shop was the rather crudely realised zigzag in the sign writing. And you can see me taking the photograph, <laughs> sort of crouching, because there was a thing in the way and I couldn't take it properly. <coughs> The zigzag, as Kate demonstrates, encodes the lightning bolt in flash photography that has become a ubiquitous image, one that endures in the icon on our camera phones, as she said. So familiar is the zigzag that, in fact, its presence here in the step-laddered lightning dangling from the irregularly spaced letters, so from the top of the B of back to the squashed H of flash, seems redundant. And that's, why, that's what really struck me about this when I, when I came across it last week. But I thought to myself, the very persistence of the zigzag, highlighting the word-image relation, and restoring a kind of primal connection of flash which, with lightning, was a sign. I took it as a sign. <laughs> Having read Kate's dazzling book, I was prompted to return, this was the sign, flashback, um, returning my response to 19th century discussions, early ones, of sunlight and chemical experiments in fixing the image, before whizzing back, or forward, to Gary Schneider's recent experimental work with flashlight that Kate uh, talks about in the book. So in this process of my own kind of flashback, um, I hope to put the sun as heliographer in dialogue with lightning his relative from that realm of curonography. How do you say it, Kate? Curonography. or writing with thunder. The story of Flash, then, is one of a vexed relationship to photography using so-called natural light, photography that uses so-called natural light, photography that preceded it. As Kate shows... There's drama and danger involved in the various physical practices of taking flash photographs. The violence of flash guns, the risky pyrotechnics of flash powder, flash strips, flash bulbs. There's the notion of intrusiveness that she just talked about in social documentary. 
and the camera's revelation of, quote, the detritus of the everyday, as it's stirred into visibility by flashlight. In a sense, flash constitutes the obverse of early photographic processes as we tend to think of them. For as Kate notes, flash invariably makes its action known in an ostentatious way. Flash signals an event, informs distinct from photographic technologies that came before it. That event might be innocuous, it might be a celebratory family portrait captured indoors after dark, or it might be one of appalling racist violence and murder, as in the flash photograph of, of a lynching, which Kate discusses in the book. Practices of flash photography render deep darkness at one extreme, and they render shine and flashy exposure, indecent and otherwise, at the other. Perhaps not surprisingly, though, as it evolves, flash as a practice comes to split amateur and professional photographers in telling ways. The language used to theorise flash photography and the stories told about flash in popular manuals and magazines and in the realms of, of art photography are alternately nuanced and frank. Um, and for the pioneering American commercial photographer Jesse Tarbox Beals that we just saw in Kate's presentation, Flash facilitated considerable variety in picturing tenement life. But she didn't actually talk about Flash in any of her interviews or in her writing. She didn't really mention, she didn't never mention the fact she used it. In Ouija, as we've seen, in his photographs of crime from the 40s and 50s, indispensable flashlight always, always, always announced its presence. And he was very proud to handle the first flash bulb produced by General Electric. For Cartier-Bresson, as we heard in the 50s, by distinction, flash went against the photographer's impeccable sense of timing. As Kate shows, Cartier-Bresson's view indicates a declining respect for photographers who employed artificial means to combat poor light. Furthermore, such negative associations that come to attach to technologies of flash also signal its divergence from the language of natural sublimity, to which it had earlier been aligned. But to reflect upon the distinctiveness of photographs produced by flash, the effects of its illumination upon vision and temporality, is also to return perpetually to this question of the difference of flash photographs from ones produced by, let's say, daylight. Flashlight and those rhetorical forms in which it appears prompt us to revisit, I think, the anthropomorphization of sunlight as photographic agent in relationship to lightning, flashes analogue in the natural world. Now, the vital role played by the agency of sunlight in the language of early photography is very familiar. Metaphors of the bountiful sun, of photography as light's brush or the solar pencil, as enshrined in William Henry Fox Talbot's The Pencil of Nature, form part of the 19th century vocabulary of the medium. Henry Morley <coughs> excuse me, and um, William Henry Wills's satirical article, Photography, published anonymously in Dickens' Household Words, 19th of March, 1853, describing a visit to John Mayles Regent Street studio, pronounces light from the sky as a chief part of the stock in trade 
of the photographer. So we just go. But the authors then go on to say, apologies for the, that bullet point thing on there. Other light than the sun's can be employed. But while the sun continues to pour down to us a daily flow of light of the best quality, as cheap as health, we will not say as cheap as dirt, for dirt is a dear article, sunlight will be consumed by the photographers in preference to any other. A diffused mellow light from the sky, which moderates the darkness of all shadows, is much better suited to the purpose of photography than a direct sunbeam, which creates hard contrasts of light and shade. Lumpy shadows haunt the chambers of all <coughs> bad photographers. <coughs> Cheap, diffused light via a skylight is here preferable to a directed sunbeam, generating hard contrasts and strong shadows that will later characterise the thrown light of flash. In the same article, a description of making a daguerreotype anthropomorphizes the metal plate or the surface upon which the image is captured. Quote, the prepared silver reposing in the darkness is laid open to receive the meditated shock upon its sensibility. Interestingly here then, photographic shock is measured, meditated, and thereby a far cry from the unmeditated shock of flashlight. For Elizabeth Eastlake, for Lady Elizabeth Eastlake, describing the evolution of photographic processes in the London Quarterly Review of 1857, Frederick Scott, Scott Archer's wet collodion supplies an element of rapidity required to keep up with the sun. Under the magician who first attempted to enlist the powers of light in his service, the sun seems at best to have been a sluggard. Under the sorcery of Nieps, he became a drudge in a 12 hours factory. On the prepared plate of Daguerre and on the sensitive paper of Fox Talbot, the great luminary concentrates his gaze for a few earnest minutes. With the albumum sheathed glass, he takes his time more leisurely still. But at the delicate film of Collodion, he literally does no more than wink his eye, tracing in that moment with a detail and precision beyond all human power, the glory of the heavens. Further than this, the powers of photography can never go. They're already more nimble than we need. It has been difficult to contrive the machinery of the camera to keep pace with light, and collodion has to be weakened in order to clog its wheels. While much of the discourse of early photography is framed around the sun's relative willingness to perform, he's either generous or he's miserly with his rays, and here Eastlake lavishes praise upon the sun's modest wink of an eye. Her concern is also with keeping pace with light rather than generating greater capacities for illumination. The powers of photography are, she claims, already more nimble than we need. The word nimble, like those of sluggard and drudge, is one, a word that rem that's remote from Flash's repertoire. But in this context, I want to ask, how might we situate flashlight, sometimes known as Kate, as Kate pointed out, as bottled sunlight? How does the language of Flash's lightning bolt relate to these prevalent solar stories? For me, the invention of Flash that follows such accounts makes strange once more the whole business of the agency of the photographer in relationship to that of the sun, 
And this is something that came across very strongly to me when I was reading um, Kate's book. The light generated by flash has implications for established investments in the role of sunlight in photography. The lightning bolt work of flash signals the excesses and the terror of the Burkean sublime, while shifting it in a, in a Kantian sense too, to the realm of the mind. As Kate demonstrates, flash impacts upon the relationship between lightning and revelation, as found, for example, in the writings of Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, Wordsworth, the paintings of John Martin and Turner. And Kate shows how in 19th century accounts of lightning, the coming together of religious and mythological interpretations with contemporary discussions of physics brings, quote, a raw edge of imminent danger. For lightning burns, as we've just heard, it sears the dark sky, striking land with colossal force. <laughs> but lightning also, as we just saw, has the capacity to, print it, to imprint itself. Lightning prints, imprints of images made by lightning on receptive surfaces, were believed to evidence lightning's power. And Kate discusses examples in the book, such as the replica of a landscape on the fleece of a sheep struck by lightning. Such examples of what are believed to be lightning's um, capacity to imprint bear a close connection with contact prints, photographs made without cameras. And such imprints by lightning also conjure Sir John Herschel's and, and Talbot's experiments in the late 1830s and early 1840s in harnessing the sun. In early photography, things appeared and disappeared. Sometimes they disappeared, only to reappear unexpectedly later. As documented in letters between Herschel and Talbot, their experiments were frequently attempts to stop the disappearance of an image captured on sensitised paper, to, present, to, sorry, to prevent the sun from running its course to blackness. Far from the physical shock accompanying flash, early chemical experimentation experimentation was often a slow waiting game. Herschel, for example, in a letter to Talbot of 6th of April 1841, reports on an image of a lady who was, quote, a week and upwards in the sun. It took that long for a positive impression from an engraving taken on sensitised paper to develop. On other occasions, Herschel's experiments with plant juices produce almost invisible images that over time reappear in different hues. So he puts an image in the cupboard, he forgets about it, he finds it, and it's changed colour, and it's actually strengthened. While distinct from the later workings of flash, such fluctuations in visibility and invisibility suggest a kinship with flash in the sense of the evanescent, the fugitive. Though, of course, lightning flash is fugitive in a different sense, instantaneously present while that which it reveals is permanent. At the same time, in larger terms, the brevity and evanescent nature of flash may be seen to diverge from the notion of photography as permanent. Indeed, antonyms of flash, ceaseless, long-lived, are more fitting descriptors, we might say, of photography than are flash's synonyms, brief, intermittent, for example. I'm going to sort of conclude now. As Kate demonstrates, to trace the history of flash photography is to some extent to chart its move away from its analogue lightning. 
artificiality, vulgarity come to replace early associations of flash photography with the transcendent, with discourses of the sublime, and with contact, with the contact or lightning print. But there are 21st century photographers in whose work we may trace an endurance of the lightning flash, or indeed a play upon its elemental force, its imprint. And Kate includes the work of the South African-born photographer Gary Schneider in her final chapter on the aesthetics of flash. Schneider, inspired in part by Julia Margaret Cameron's large heads, recreates portraits in his head series begun in 1988. At first shooting in black and white and later moving to colour, he suspends his large format camera over his subject placed horizontally and then turns out the lights and opens the aperture of the lens. In a long exposure of upwards of eight minutes, some of them are a lot longer, he then um, moves a flashlight, a pencil torch, over the face of his subject. He counts out the seconds of the exposure, calling attention to duration as performance. In thus slowing down the instantaneous recording, the recording potential of flash, in a sense, uh, Schneider's dissolving forms capture duration in a way not unlike early chemical experiments with sunlight. His use of a torch, which we could say was a kind of form of bottled light, also undermines some of the negative assumptions, I think, um, about flash that Cates talked about. Slowly moving the torch beam, he captures images that combine the extended um, time of early experiments with the artificial illumination in the darkness. Now, in more recent experiments, Schneider has a series entitled Handprint Portraits. Schneider, Schneider um, uses contact prints. He makes portraits of the hands. These are a group of um, portraits of hands of artists in Johannesburg. Um, by inviting them to come into the studio and press their palms into emulsion. The results blown up in a large scale, to a large scale resemble early photochemical researches made without cameras. But they also, for me at least, they conjure um, the salted paper prints of Talbot, such as this one study of a hand from the early 1840s, 1842, I believe. In one sense, Schneider's handprints are far from the technologies of flash, but in another, they restore its early connection with the mark of a lightning print. Schneider's hands appear to burn into the emulsion, and harking back to Talbot's study of a hand, they appear to emit light, throwing a viewer back to the primal capacity of light to illuminate and to imprint. As Kate asks very fundamental questions about the nature of flash photography, she demonstrates that its incredible properties of illumination do not simply reveal hidden things. Rather than supplementing daylight in various bottled forms, flash transforms the firm territory of sunlight in the field of photography. In Kate's dexterous hands, flash also transforms vital aspects of our relationship to the generation and to the consumption of photographic images as previously understood. <laughs> 